right, good morning, Ohio Gazimus. I am not Pastor Glenn. Your eyes are not deceiving you. Um, as Pastor Glenn explained last week, we finished up Colossians last week, and rather than jumping into Luke this week and then taking a break as we get into Holy Week and Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, we figured we'd just push Luke off for a couple of weeks. We'll start that right after Easter, um, so that should be good. But that means I get the opportunity today to, to share a little bit with you on worship, which I'm really excited about. Um, as somebody who's had the title of worship leader or worship pastor uh, over the last several years, um, it's something that's just been close to my heart and something that um, I really think we need to look at as the church. Um, we know the way language works is over time we tend to associate certain things with certain words, and maybe not accurately, but... Um, it comes to be generally understood or accepted to mean one thing when the definition could be something quite different. And, and I feel, I fear that we've done that a lot with worship. Um, and just a case in point is when you think of whoever the worship leader or the worship pastor is at a church, they're the ones that lead singing. And we tend to almost exclusively associate worship with singing at church. And when we do that, we miss out on most of what worship is because that singing is only a small part of it. So I want to take some time this morning to talk about what worship is. And to do that, we're actually going to look at seven things that worship is not. And through this time, we'll go through four different areas of worship and several different passages of Scripture. And that's probably all very confusing, but we'll make it. Um, but I want to start this morning in John chapter 4. Um, probably a familiar story of the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, but this is where our journey is going to start this morning. Um, so if you can turn there and if you'll stand with me uh, as we read God's word in honor for his word and what it is, we're going to be reading John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version, um, so you can just follow along. John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. Now it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband. 
For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray. God, as we take some time this morning to, to look to your word, to be encouraged and directed by what you have to say about worship, I pray that you would just reveal to us who you are in a new way. We'd be reminded of your awesomeness, of your holiness. We would be reminded of who we are in you. God, that you would be glorified in our hearts through our response to the word you have this morning, but to also just the work that you've done in each and every one of us and the work that you continue to do. We give this time to you, and may you speak through it. May you draw us all to yourselves, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to begin this morning talking about how we worship. How do we worship? To do that, we want to look at a little of the background of this passage. So um, this begins in a region called Samaria. And you may or may not be familiar with Samaria, but the history of Samaria came about as a result of the divided kingdom. So uh, after the three main kings of Israel, we had King Saul, King David, and then King Solomon. And after King Solomon, King Solomon's son, Rehoboam, assumed the throne. And he made some very poor decisions, and the people really did not like that. So half the kingdom said, you know what? We're not going to follow you anymore. We're going to make our own king. So Jeroboam took what became known as the northern kingdom or Israel and separated from the southern kingdom or Judah. Now the northern kingdom had a string of very wicked kings. Um, they brought back the golden calf worship. They brought back all sorts of idols from the nations surrounding them. Um, very steeped in idolatry as a nation and they never actually turned from that. So God ends up allowing them to fall to the kingdom of Assyria in 721 BC as judgment. Um, now when the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, fell. Most of the people were taken captive to Assyria, but some remained. Some were left in the land, and Assyria, as was the custom of that day, brought some of their own people and planted them in the land. Um, so there's this mixed race of people that lived in what now became known as Samaria. And the Samarians never liked the Jews, and we see this first interaction with the Jews in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah when the remnant from captivity in Babylon comes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall and rebuild the temple, and they're opposed by some of the inhabitants of the land, and those were the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the ones opposing Nehemiah and trying to stop the building. Um, so there was this enmity between them. The Samaritans had developed their own form of religion. They had the first five books of the Bible, but they had their own version. They were slightly different. Um, and from those first five books, they believed that Moses had commanded them to worship on Mount Gerizim, which is the mountain that the woman refers to in this. They actually had a temple there, um, and they believed that was the place they were supposed to worship, and they rejected everything else that the Jews believed in. So all their traditions, all the prophets that came afterwards, the Samaritans did not believe were from God. 
they believed they were defiling what was the true religion, the true religion that they had. And the Jews at the same time saw Samaritans as defiling the true religion because they didn't keep all the laws that they had and all the traditions. So there was this hostility between the two of them. They did not get along at all. And we see this in the text uh, when it says in verse chapter 9 for Jews, or verse 9, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And, and that was the thing. Um, and Jews would actually go way out of their way to avoid even going through Samaria. And that's why this woman is so surprised that Jesus is talking to her. Jesus begins asking her some questions, telling her about herself, probes into her personal life a little bit, and probably gets a little too personal because she tries to deflect him. She's like, okay, I see your prophet. Tell us where we need to worship because there's this huge debate. So why don't you weigh, on, weigh in on whether it's supposed to be here in Mount Gerizim, which is what we believe, or is it supposed to be in Jerusalem, which is what the Jews teach? And Jesus answers, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And here's where he's going to introduce something new. And our first point that we want to make about worship is worship is not about a location. Jesus says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit. And all the religious systems up to that point were about a physical location. You think the Jerusalem and in Jerusalem there was the temple, and the Jews were required to go to the temple to offer their sacrifices to worship. You think uh, for Samaria, they had Mount Gerizim. You think the Philistines, when they worshipped Dagon, they had their temples. The, even the Greeks and the Romans had their temples where you went to worship the gods. It was always about coming to this place to worship. And Jesus is saying, God is spirit. He doesn't live in a temple. He even refers to himself as the temple. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews were confused. They're like, well, this took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to raise it in three days? Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And this is further built on this idea that God doesn't dwell in human buildings in Acts chapter 7. It says, yet the most high God does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God is greater than any building that does not dwell in buildings. And Jesus is saying we don't need to go to a building to meet him. And we build on this even further in the, the letters in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So Jesus is making the point that worship is not about a location. In Malachi 1, verse 11, God says, For from the rising sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. We worship God with our spirit, which can be done and should be done anywhere we are. It doesn't have to be at a specific location. So the first thing we draw out of here is worship is not about a location, which means for us today, worship is not about church on Sunday morning. We, we have this idea of, well, I'm going to go to church to worship. Like, yes, we can express our worship there, but we can worship from home too, and we should be. We should be worshiping wherever we are because God is spirit and we worship him with our spirit. But there's another thing that Jesus draws out of this. Worship is not about a location, but worship is not whatever we want it to be. He says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know, referring to the Samaritans' religious system, what they worshiped because they had this incomplete version of the first five books of the Bible, and that's what they based their worship on. And he's saying, you worship what you don't know. He's saying the Jews, they worship what they know. Salvation is of the Jews because God had given them a fuller picture. But then he says, 
after saying neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, he says, God is spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And that truth part is important. We must worship God's way and not ours. And a lot of times we have this tendency to say, well, that's worship for me, or this is how I worship him. Uh, And that doesn't work that way. And it's actually scary to look at some of the Old Testament examples of people taking worship into their own hands. In Leviticus chapter 10, we have the story of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were the eldest sons of Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest of Israel. Nadab and Abihu were his sons who were supposed to take his place. They were also priests in Israel. And immediately after God gives all the regulations for how to offer sacrifices and how to offer incense and all the correct amounts and mixtures and all of that, immediately after that we read about Nadab and Abihu offering what's called strange fire before the Lord. Basically unauthorized, not according to what God had just laid out. They took it into their own hands, they did it their own way, and God immediately kills them. Because he had described a specific way that they were to be worshiping him, and they chose not to do it. And the punishment was immediate death. And it's not the only example of that. If you look in First Chronicles chapter 13, the story of Uzzah and the Ark. So the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines, been finally recaptured. King David says, we want to bring it back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. So they load it up on a cart. They're driving back to Jerusalem. The cart hits a bump. The Ark almost falls off, and Uzzah, who's on the cart, reaches his hand back to steady it so it doesn't fall onto the ground and he immediately dies. You may look at that in confusion, like why would God kill him? He was trying to keep the ark from falling on the ground. And the reason is God had prescribed a very specific way in which the ark was supposed to be transported. It was all in the law. There was supposed to be these poles. There was rings that the poles went through. The Levites were supposed to carry it. There was a specific group of Levites that was supposed to carry it. And the people of Israel had said, we're going to do it our own way. We're going to make our own way to do it. We're going to do it on a cart seems much better. And because of that, Uzzah was killed. And we say, well, that was Old Testament. God doesn't do that. God doesn't change. Malachi 3.6 says, for I, the Lord, do not change. James chapter 1 describes God as someone with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. His holiness, his awesomeness, his worthiness are still the same. And although he might not punish immediately, the punishment is still there which is why we want to worship correctly according to what Scripture would say, not according to what we think we should do or what we would like to do. Worship is not about a place, and worship is not whatever we want it to be. I want to move now to the Old Testament, and we're going to look at actually a scene of worship in Isaiah chapter 6. If you want to turn there, we looked a little bit about how do we worship, but now I want to talk about why we worship why we worship. And we're going to dig into this in Isaiah chapter 6. And I just want to read the first seven verses. In Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So they're looking at this picture of why we worship. We worship because he is worthy. In verse chapter 1, Isaiah sees the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. God is worthy. And I don't think it's insignificant. The way this verse starts, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah was one of the better kings of Judah, a um, very prosperous king. He reigned for over 50 years. They expanded their borders during his reign. It was a time of peace and wealth and prosperity. And it's interesting that it's not till after this king passed away that Isaiah looked up and saw the Lord. And I think the lesson for us is how easy it is for us to put our trust in these earthly things we can see, whether that be government, whether that be our bank account, whether that be our job. We like to put our trust in these things that we can tangibly see and touch and feel, and that those things can distract us from seeing God for who he is. So Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And this picture of God He's shown respect by the angels. In verse 2, we read about the seraphim that are standing around the throne. And these seraphim have six wings, and with two, they're flying. But with the other four wings, they're covering their feet and their faces in a sign of respect. And this is something we don't really see a lot today. But this idea of covering the feet as respect, we look back to Moses and when Moses encountered the burning bush, and he's exploring it and trying to figure out what it is. And God says, take off your feet, take off your shoes for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. The idea is don't drag in this dust and dirt from the world that you've been walking through into this place because this place is separate, this place is holy. And that's the idea we have here with the angels covering their feet or their feet, which in, in principle would be traveling the world and would be out of the presence of God. Those need to be covered in his presence because he is holy and he is pure. And I, I think it's just fascinating to look at this because when we think about the angels, and I, I know we can make you know these pretty Christmas drawings of white robes and feathered wings and halos, but these angels were pretty terrifying creatures. You think that one angel in Second Kings nineteen thirty five killed one hundred eighty five thousand people in one night? Just one angel. I think every time somebody encounters an angel in the Bible. The reaction is fear and terror. The first thing an angel always has to say is, don't be afraid, unless he's going to kill them, and then he doesn't say anything. <laughs> but these were powerful beings. In verse 4, it says their voice shook the foundations of the thresholds of that temple. This was the angel's voice. Um, and we also think that these are morally pure beings. Like there were angels that have fallen, but the angels that are still with God are are morally pure, yet even they cover their feet in the presence of God. That's how holy he is. And these angels, they, they don't even talk to God. He's too holy for that. They talk to each other in his presence, crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Speaking holy three times for emphasis, like the ultimate holiness to God is just the utmost respect. And we think about just that idea of respect and um, the idea of sin. I was listening to a, a pastor one time talking about his trip to the Middle East, and he was talking about how he had a conversation in a taxi with a taxi driver. He was trying to get the point of, of sin and the penalty for sin. 
And he says to him, if I were to slap you right now, what would happen? And the taxi driver says, well, I'd, I'd throw you out of my cab. Like, yeah, you probably would. I'm like, what about that police officer on, on that corner? What if I went and slapped him? And the taxi driver said, well, you'd probably end up in jail. Like, you're probably right. What if I slapped the king? What would happen then? And he said, you would get executed. So the difference is not the offense. The offense is the same in all cases. The difference is the person to whom the offense was committed. So now when we magnify that from a king, an earthly king, to an awesome, holy, powerful God, that is a light in which we need to see our sin. Not as if it were committed against one another, as if it were committed against this awesome, this powerful, this pure being. So Isaiah, Isaiah sees this picture of God, and I want to take just a quick side trip right now. Um, let me talk about this God who's so holy and so awesome and so amazing that the angels themselves cover their feet in his presence. It's a sign of respect. The angels cover their feet. This is the same God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And in, in an event that we're going to celebrate in just a couple of weeks, after dinner, he takes a towel and he ties it around his waist. And he kneels before Judas Iscariot and washes his feet. God who knows the heart of men. God who in his presence, the angels cover their own feet, wash the feet of the man who would betray him and wash the feet of the man who would deny him. And if we ever think we are too far gone from the grace of God, may this be a picture that God would love us so much that even though he was informed God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and instead made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. And therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is it no wonder that as Isaiah is in the presence of this awesome God, that he says, woe is me, I am undone. Literally, I am lost because I am a sinner and I do not deserve to live in the presence of this holy God. And this is a, a common occurrence. If you think Isaiah, he was the prophet of God, right? He had spent time receiving the message of God and giving it to the people of Israel for several years at this point. Yet he gets one glimpse of the throne room of God. He says, I'm lost. I'm undone. We think about Moses Moses, who met with God for years, who would spend time in the tent of meeting, meeting with God so much that his face was lit up with the glory of God when he left. He walked with God. He was a friend of God. And he sees one glimpse of the back of God's glory, and he bows in haste in Exodus 34, 8. We also have the example of Job. Um, if you've read the book of Job, Job, that God called an upright person. There was none like him in his generation when he was talking to Satan. Job spends 35 chapters, the majority of the book of Job, defending himself to his friends, explaining that he is right, wishing that he could have an audience with God to explain his side because surely God would see that he was right. So God gives him an audience, and Job doesn't think he's right. Job says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
After all that, all it took was one encounter with an awesome holy God for him to realize his place and to realize God's place. God is so awesome and so holy that if we actually see him for who he is, we will worship him. God is holy. He's awesome and completely worthy of the worship of all things. And because of this reality, we come to the third thing that worship is not. Worship is not casual. It can't be casual in the presence of a holy God. If we have this picture of who God is, we can't say things like, I'll worship if I have time, if I'm not busy. He can have this much. He can have this couple hours on this day, but the rest I need for myself. Or I'll worship him as long as it doesn't interfere with my job or my family life or my hobbies or the plans I've made. None of this stands when we remember who God is. We cannot worship him casually. We cannot worship him just part way. God is holy and wholly deserving of our worship. We worship because he is worthy. And we also worship because we are unworthy. And we see this in the end of Isaiah, this passage, which is talking about the coal touching the lips and um, taking the guilt away, this coal being a picture of Jesus Christ and the atonement that he makes for our sin. We are unworthy of that atonement. But I want to look at this deeper by going to Luke. Luke chapter 7. Probably another familiar story as we have the story of the woman who anoints Jesus with oil. It's Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to start reading in verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with them, talking about Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now in this story of Jesus, we we look at two different characters, two contrasting characters. The first one is Simon. He's a Pharisee, a religious leader. He's respected within that community. Fairly well off, he has a home that he's inviting people to at this social occasion. He's a host. He's very influential in this community, and he thinks much of himself. 
Um, he seems to be on the fence about who Jesus is. He brought him in. He invited him to come to dinner. He's not openly hostile. This is still fairly early in the ministry of Jesus before the Pharisees were openly hostile to him. So he's willing to bring, them in, bring him in to hear what he has to say. Probably a little curious. There are rumors around that he might be a prophet, so maybe he wants to see. But at the same time, he doesn't offer many of the social graces that would have been customary if this was an important person. As Jesus rightly points out, he doesn't wash his feet when he comes in, clean off the dust from the road. He doesn't anoint his head with oil, which would have been another customary thing to do to, to get all the dust from the road off and from traveling. He doesn't do that. So although he's willing to hear Jesus, he doesn't consider Jesus better than himself. He sees himself as the important person. And we contrast this to the woman. And we don't know a lot about this woman. We know she is openly sinful. That is referred to in this passage. We would assume that because of her actions here that she has been somehow touched by Jesus in his ministry so far. Um, if you look at the gospel timelines, this may have happened shortly after the events of Matthew eleven twenty eight, where Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It could be that this woman was present for that. Um, regardless, she had been touched somehow. And because of that, she's willing to come in. She's willing to brave the ridicule and the condemnation that she's going to receive for doing this in such a public place, but she's willing to do that in order to worship Jesus. She has, she has been touched somehow. And, and we contrast this, and which, which worship did Jesus accept? Was it the worship of the woman who anointed him, or was it the worship of the Pharisee who invited him to have dinner? And it's interesting and, and ironic, as, as Simon, this Pharisee, has seen this happen, he's like, if he was a prophet, he wouldn't let her do this. He would know who she is, which is ironic because Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows the thoughts that are in men, John 2, 25. And to show this, he answers Simon's thoughts. Not by addressing the woman, but addressing Simon. And Simon is thinking, if he, if he knew, he wouldn't let her do this. And he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he tells this parable about two men who owed two debts. They were different. They were both forgiven. And he asked Simon which one loved him more. And Simon is caught at this point and says, well, I suppose the one with the bigger debt forgiven. Of course, it's the one with the bigger debt forgiven, but Simon's probably trying to save a little bit of face. But I think this brings up an inter interesting point because the parable uses two people who have different amounts of debt. We can't take this and directly apply this to us because we don't have different amounts of debt sin in that kind of a context. Um, James chapter 2 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point becomes guilty of all of it. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a different degree of sin in our lives. So what is Jesus saying here? It's not about the degree of sin. It's about the recognition of sin. See, for Simon, it wasn't that he hadn't been forgiven. It was that he didn't think he needed it. He thought he was fine. What was lacking is not the sin, but the knowledge of it. R.C. Sproul explains this really well. He says, if you have but slightly experienced the forgiveness of God, is that because your sins are slight? Or is the slightness of your experience of forgiveness a reflection of the degree or measure of your repentance? 
If you have experienced the forgiveness of Christ in equal measure to the reality of your sin, then you have been forgiven much because our sins have indeed been many. And so we are candidates to be great lovers of Christ if we would but experience his forgiveness. The sinful woman was showing love to Jesus in proportion to the recognition she had of her need for his forgiveness. Simon, on the other hand, was showing love in proportion to the recognition that he had of his need for forgiveness. A.W. Tozer, in his book on worship, describes three misconceptions that we can have that hinder our ability to truly worship God. The first is when we think God is a different kind of God than what he really is. When the character of a sovereign and holy God isn't accurate in our own minds. And this is the picture we have in Isaiah. When he sees God for who he really is, his attitude of worship changes. And this is true for us. Simon did not see God for who he really was. But the second thing, the second misconception we can have in our minds is when we think that man holds a relationship to God that in fact he does not. When we assume we are deserving of acceptance without an intermediary. When we think, as many people would say, well, I'm good enough. I'm, I'm mostly a good person. You know, Simon's thinking, well, I, I keep the law. I'm a religious leader, so I'm, I'm good enough. He's seeing himself in a relationship to God that doesn't actually exist. It's not real. And the third thing, the third misconception we have is when we think that sin is far less serious than it really is. When we don't understand that, that the smallest white lie, the smallest little thing that we steal is enough to keep us from God. God is so pure and so holy and so just that the smallest amount of sin is enough to alienate us from him forever. When we lose that idea of our sin, and we lose the idea that, that an atonement is necessary for that sin through the cross. Simon was in a position where he didn't think his sin was that serious. He thought he was doing pretty good. And maybe the things he did wrong, well, it's better than what this lady did, so I'm, I should be fine, right? And because of those misconceptions, he didn't recognize the need he had and his love was lacking. And I want to compare Simon now not to this sinful woman, but let's compare him to another religious leader of the day. Someone who had probably started out in a very similar fashion, but whose life took a vastly different direction. If we compare Simon, who calls Jesus teacher, to the Apostle Paul, who calls Jesus Lord, and calls himself a bondservant. Simon, who feels good about himself, feels confident in his standing who he is in society. Paul, who will list all his accomplishments and says, I consider them all nothing as rubbish before God. Paul, who would consider himself the chief of sinners. There's a difference in understanding between these two men. One understands who God is. One doesn't. One understands who he is in relationship to God, and one doesn't. One understands the gravity of his sin, and one doesn't. Therefore, one responds in worship and one doesn't. We worship God because he is worthy. We worship God because we are unworthy. The next section I want to look at, now that we've looked at how do we worship and why we worship, let's look at what is worship. What is it that we're supposed to be given to God? If you turn with me to Romans chapter 12, just the first two verses, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. 
says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In Romans 12, verse 1, we read that worship is a response. It begins, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore. And if we look back through the rest of the book of Romans, um, a book of more theological depth than probably another book we have in the Bible. If we look through all of this, though, we see this path. Therefore, in light of the sinfulness of man. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, in the light of the holiness of who God is, God's glory. Therefore, in the light of his assuming our sin. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. In light of this, in light of this amazing gift we receive and our unworthiness to receive it, in light of that, in light of the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. And I think it's interesting that he uses the phrase or the term sacrifice because sacrifice was a very familiar concept to the Jews at that time. Their whole religious system was based off of offering sacrifices. But if you look back through the Old Testament, you understand that sacrifices were never the point. Sacrifices were always supposed to symbolize something else. In Hosea 6.6, God writes, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In Micah chapter 6, verse 6, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It was never about the sacrifices. It was about the, what the sacrifices represent. And that's the fifth thing we want to look at. Worship is not a ritual. Worship is about a response in the heart that is then shown through obedience. Psalm 51, verse 16 says, You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken spirit and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Worship is a response of a broken heart. James chapter 4 says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. That is the worship that God wants. The sacrifices that the Jews have been offering up to this point were supposed to be a picture of that a picture of that brokenness before God, a picture of that dependence on God. That's what the sacrifices were. But the Jews had made them a thing in and of themselves. And we do the same thing whenever we make something else and act our worship instead of our heart. When we say, my worship is when I go to church on a Sunday morning, that's worship. Or worship is when I put money in, in the tithe or in the offering plate, that's worship. Or worship is, is whatever it is, when we attach worship to the thing instead of worship being attached to the heart. Worship is not a ritual. And thing number six, worship is not outward. Worship is about our heart. Worship is about the position of our heart. It's an inward change 
with outward evidence. That's why Paul writes in Romans 12 that we're to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And this is what it means to be a living sacrifice, to take up your cross. And notice he says, daily. We're to live for him, to live our lives for him, to have our life in him, and to not live it for ourselves. It's supposed to be something that happens continually, daily, every day. So yes, we do worship on a Sunday. This is still something we're supposed to do, something we're called to do. But we do it out of obedience, not because that's what worship is. We obey by gathering on Sunday because we are worshiping him in our hearts throughout the rest of the week. A.W. Tozer, again, says, if you will not worship God seven days a week, you do not worship him on one day a week. We can't pray one way and live another. We can't have our, our church personality and our work personality and our home personality and still think we're somehow worshiping God in all of that. We're worshiping God through our heart attitude all of the time. We can't ignore sin in our lives and still worship. In Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Worship is about our whole lives, not just one time or one period in our life. We must worship in everything. So yes, we gather on Sunday because we're commanded to gather. Hebrews 10.25 says, don't forsake the gathering together of believers, especially as you see the day approaching. So yes, we're going to do that as an expression of our worship, but that's not worship in and of itself. And we sing on Sunday morning because we're commanded to sing. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Spirit, singing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. So we're commanded to do it, but that's not what worship is. Worship is our heart, our attitude that says, I'm going to obey the commands of Christ because he's called me to, because he's worthy of it, because I am unworthy of the grace that he's shown to me. And this is something that we have to do in everything and not just in certain times, certain places, or certain periods. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as if for the Lord, not for men. 1 Corinthians 10.31, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything we do can and should be an act of worship when we do it with the right heart and the right attitude, when we do it keeping Christ in our hearts as Lord. So number seven, worship is not something we do only Sunday at church. Worship is an inward response to who God is and what he has done that compels us to give all of our hearts to him and to live every aspect of our lives for him. Um, I, ha I have an uncle who is involved in, in worship training. He actually goes around and, and provides workshops for churches. And as I was preparing for a a seminar at one time, he sent me some of his notes, and in his notes was this little article called The Perfect Worshipper Personified. And, and I really like it because it's something I've seen and recognized, and I think you probably will too. So I want to take a couple minutes right now and just read this. It says, years ago I learned what worship was from my neighbor. 
I would watch this young man as each week he prepared for Sunday. He would always start the previous Sunday tediously rehearsing that which we had heard and seen that day. He would pour over the copious notes that he had taken, memorizing every nuance so that he could learn more. Early in the week, he wrote his conclusions from those notes down and sent letters to all the leadership involved, praising them for the joy that their efforts had given him, commenting on any dis disappointments while offering solutions to the problems and sharing his thoughts about the upcoming Sunday. He would start studying for the week ahead, devouring anything and everything related to the coming Sunday. He would engage anyone that would talk to him in a discussion, encouraging them to be passionate and to prepare like he did. By Saturday, he was setting out his wardrobe for the day, checking the car to make sure it had gas and oil and that the tire pressure was good. He didn't want any distractions on Sunday, and he most certainly did not want to miss a minute because his car failed him. He woke up early Sunday morning and set out hours ahead of time so that he wouldn't be late. Usually, he was the first to arrive. I had never seen anybody pour his life into something like that. Everyone who knew him knew he lived for Sundays, for getting together with others and showering his worship upon his God. Unfortunately, because of this, we all nicknamed him Football Dude, and his God was the Chicago Bears. We all laughed at his fanaticism, but I often wonder what a church full of people who would give the same worth to God that he gave to football would be like. Imagine even a single individual as sold out to Christ as my neighbor was to football, sharing his passion with everyone he met, preparing for every corporate gathering with a 24-7 intensity similar to that exhibited by the football dude. He epitomized worship. His whole being, his heart, his soul, his mind, his strength was devoted to one thing and one thing alone. His life was devoted to giving worth to football. Everyone who knew him knew what he loved. The question we as believers should be wrestling with is, what would those that know us say that we loved? Our worship is an inward response to who God is and what he has done that compels us to give all of our hearts to him and live every aspect of our lives for him. When this takes us to the final section I want to look at, we looked at how we worship, we looked at why we worship, we looked at what is worship, and now we look at who do we worship. Because we all worship something. We are all giving our time, our attention, our energy, our devotion to something. And the question is, what is that something? Because if it's not God, then we're wrong. God is a jealous God. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Deuteronomy 4.24 describes God as a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is worthy of all of our worship. And any of that that we do not give to him, we are robbing from him to give it to something else that doesn't deserve it. In Romans chapter 1, we see the progression of idolatry. Romans chapter 1 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, nor give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. How does idolatry come about? It comes when we elevate our own thoughts and our own ideas and give them more worth than God. And that could be any number of things. Maybe it's not carved idols anymore, but maybe it's money. That gets our thoughts, that gets our attention. Maybe it's fame. Maybe it's our social position. 
and all of these can be idols, but I think the biggest idol that we have in our culture today is ourselves. We live in a time like none other in history where the self is exalted. And to see this, you only have to look as far as social media. And I'm not saying social media is a bad thing. But when else in history could I say whatever I want and immediately have it in front of thousands of people for them to like it and to comment and to share? And how easy it is for me to start to derive my value from how many people like and comment and share and follow. And that becomes my focus. And I, the more I invest in that, the more I begin to think, well, maybe I am something instead of realizing that I am nothing. And the more I invest in that, the more I get distracted from God and who he is. And the more I begin to put my faith and my trust and my hope in what other people say about this image of myself that I've made. And I put myself in a place that I do not belong. I do not belong in that throne. God does. And God will be worshipped. Romans 14, 11, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. Philippians chapter 2 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There will come a day when God reveals himself to the world, and everyone will worship him because he is worthy of the worship. But the question for us now, God has shown himself to us now. He has shown his love for us through his son. The question is, what do we do with that? Do we, as Paul and as the sinful woman did, recognize our need for a savior? Or are we more like Simon and think, well, we're, we're good enough, and we'll invite him over to dinner, but he's not the Lord of our lives. And the challenge and the question that we need to ask if we were to examine our daily life, who or what would it show that we are worshiping? Let's pray. God, we are humbled as we consider who you are. We know that you alone are worthy of worship, God, but it's so easy to get distracted, to get wrapped up in other things, to want other things. But you're the only one worthy of all of that, God. I pray that as we go out from here this morning, God, it wouldn't just be something that we just forget, but that you would keep this in front of us. That you continue to show us not only your awesomeness and your holiness, but also the incredible love, incredible grace that you've poured out for us. You continue to remind us that our life is found in you. And you alone are worthy of our time, our attention, and of our worship. Pray that you be glorified in your body here this morning and as we go out into the world this week. It's in Jesus' name.